Welcome to The Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution, with knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength. This podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity and how organizations will need to manage, secure, protect and organize intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new age of trust by Verizon. Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today, the topic is leveraging the link between 5G and digital twin technology. We hear a lot about digital twins. We hear a lot about 5G. We're also hearing a lot about geospace or spatial services. But what does it all mean? What does it mean to businesses and government? And what does it mean today? This is a really fascinating discussion about innovation, entrepreneurship, technology, emergency management, and how we can actually use digital twins to fast track the development of our most important industries. I'd like to welcome Wayne Patterson, the Director of Spatial Services at the New South Wales Government Department of Customer Service. Wayne's responsible for the production and maintenance of New South Wales Foundation Spatial Data. This is a very interesting role and a very interesting lens when we talk about technology. Tony Harb is the Head of Solution Architects for Verizon. Tony focuses on driving the strategy and solutions capability within IP-enabled voice, data and video services cloud and premise-based IT, security and managed network services, along with custom outsourced solutions. As we talk, you'll see how Tony's the perfect counter to help provide the technical framework for the sorts of work that the Spatial Services Agency is doing as part of its New South Wales government work. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Corey. Wayne, can I ask you a little bit about the organisation and your role and what it is that it does today and where it may have originated from? I realise we're talking about some very kind of high-tech solutions today, but they have been born out of more topography, et cetera, you were explaining earlier. Yeah, thank you very much, Corey. Yeah, Spatial Services actually had a long history in New South Wales government going back well over 50 years. A lot of people may remember us as the Central Mapping Authority or the Department of Lands or Land and Property Information. We've gone through many name changes. And back in the days, we were responsible for the production of paper maps, topographic maps, regional street directories, also maintaining the land titles register for New South Wales. So obviously with the advent of technology and the advances today, we are really responsible for the production and maintenance of those two to 300, what we call foundation spatial data sets, those key fundamental data sets that need to be produced that actually depict part of our built and natural environment. So you can think of geocoded addressings, land pass and property boundaries, river, water networks, height and depth, positioning and survey infrastructure for the state. So our role now is just the production and maintenance of that, but also the delivery of those now digital products and services out across government, industry and the community for their use in their own systems and applications that then for them to build on. So as we have more and more information, we're talking about all of that paper-based information is now, it's electronic, it's probably greater detail. So Tony, 
In what you're saying, what is the role of 5G in the way we're talking about like location services, we're talking about being able to understand in depth you know, regional areas and their composition? What are you seeing with the way that 5G is impacting the ability to process this information that Wayne's been talking about? Yeah, look, uh, I think uh, where we should start is I suppose where the differences are between 5G and previous wireless type technologies, which is what are these geospatial capabilities rely upon? There's a lot of that sort of wireless capabilities. But if we look at 5G, compared to 4G, 4G and those wireless capabilities were very much focused on two aspects, throughput and data rates. So speed, effectively, and throughput. But what we've seen with 5G is a significant, I suppose, um, increase in terms of the capabilities that it provides and offers these services. And uh, we actually have eight capabilities, and we call those the eight currencies of 5G. But very importantly, I'm just going to pick on a couple because they're really relevant to this discussion around collection of data and then the dissemination of data that we're now digitizing and as a result having more of it because what we're seeing as well is we're having a lot more sensors, a lot more devices out there that enable this uh, data to be available for these geospatial sort of type services. And what's important with 5G is obviously the throughput and the speed, we're talking about a 10 times increase in terms of that. But also in terms of if we think about IoT devices and devices and sensors, whatever the case may be, it can be a user, it can be a person, it can be a device. Today, we can support up to, with 5G, a million devices per square kilometer. With previous technologies, maximum you could support in the best coverage was about 10,000 devices. We know that we're in the age of the internet where everything is connected. So think about that and how many devices you can have per square kilometer. The other big aspect we have is latency. Now, latency is a significant driver here in the sense that we can receive performances of less than 10 milliseconds. And why is that important? Because when you're looking for real-time data, anything above that, really becomes ineffective for real-time purposes and real-time analysis and real-time evaluation of the data sets that you're receiving and, and now can collect. Just as importantly, there's reliability. We've gone from wireless services that had that best three nines performance, and so as a result, you really not relied upon fixed services, to a service that gives you five nines in terms of reliability. And that ability to know that your service is up and then always available is important, and I think we're going to talk about some of the uh, things like with first responders where they need that collection of data and need to know they have a reliable network, it becomes extremely important. So there's some of the things that we're seeing in this space that really become important. And I'm going to finally end it off by talking about throughput. We've gone from a throughput which was okay to about 10 gigs of throughput. Now, just to illustrate that for you, it would mean that downloading a high-definition movie and video now takes anything less than a second where previously it could take up to 30 to 40 seconds. So think about the collection of data and then being able to use that data in real time and how throughput makes a big difference when you're now being able to use 5G capabilities. Understanding the technical ability there that, and sort of framing that, I want to bring it back to the bushfires of New South Wales that aren't just obviously well-known in New South Wales and Australia, but across the world. People got a really big understanding of how big an impact that made and also how quickly these fires were moving across geographies and affecting communities and often communities that weren't well connected. So, Wayne, I guess from your office perspective, the work that you're doing underpins understanding where things are, where people are. From a communications perspective, you know, your work would be vital. What did you see then and where is it going? How are we getting better at understanding where things are happening? It's a very, very interesting question and very rapidly developing space as well. One of the, the major concerns that people raised from the black summer bushfire season was the loss of connectivity. Now, infrastructure 
and service provision is reliant on those assets being protected. So being able to, one, map those assets, have the location of those assets, work with our industry partners, so that information is spatially enabled and available to not just the emergency responders, but those managing the emergency operations and being able to work with our industry partners to identify significant assets that can be protected is just one component of the value that spatial brings into this particular space. Having that in a spatial digital twin ecosystem and environment is very, very empowering and really does aid that decision-making process. And it goes hand in hand in what Tony was saying, because being able to ensure that people and first responders in the field are able to access that information, particularly on mobile devices or whatever communications tools and mechanisms they're using, is of paramount importance in order to ensuring that asset protection and ensuring that continuity of service provision across those wide range of utilities. There's so many interesting questions to ask. And I know we've mentioned you know, IoT devices, you know, I've heard examples of being able to take the temperature of a salmon farm in Canada. You know, and also I guess there's all sorts of sensing devices. And all of those are fantastic and we can see how we can respond quickly, but the technology that underpins it has to have all the features you're talking about, Tony. Absolutely. And it's great to, in terms of what you're saying, in terms of the features are extremely important. And I want to just touch upon a couple of things that Wayne said. I mean, fortunately, you know, at Verizon, we've, we've got a proud decades-long association and commitment to supporting public safety and, and public safety agencies. And we've actually learned a lot during that period. And it's an opportunity for countries like Australia to actually learn from what some of the other countries are doing in this space. And connectivity, that reliable connectivity, knowing it's always on and always available is very important to those first responders. And 5G is just a mechanism now that allows that connectivity and allows that data, which I when referred to, is very important to be able to receive that and, and get that in a timely manner and give you that environmentally aware situation so that you can make decisions. It's extremely important to, to first responders. And in the US, we've built a, um, a platform called uh, called Frontline to support our first responders. And originally, it was built around providing that strong connectivity, that capability to connect, as Wayne said, in places where either the disaster has impaired the connectivity or you just can't get connectivity. We talk about the bush. And there's lots of places in the bush where we can't get connectivity. So we've developed a command center. We have these things called cells on wheels or cows, or these are cells on light trucks or colts, as we call them. You know, these unmanned aerial vehicles that support these cell technologies that we can basically send out into the field and provide that connectivity that first responders need and, and know that they then have that connectivity so that they can access the data. But just as importantly, Wayne referred to something about multi-agency facilities and using multi-agencies. One of the biggest problems we find is that everyone uses their own system. And when it comes to multi-agencies actually interacting with each other, they struggle because they do not have a common operating environment. And on Frontline, we've actually, working with a partner, we've developed a platform that allows those inter-agencies to all operate with each other. And operate with each other not just means talking with each other, but able to share that information with each other. So in the case of Wayne was talking about having digital twins that show you where things are, and then being able to use 5G technology to overlay real-time what's happening with it through a video feed that you receive or through a sensor which is giving you data and then overlaying that on the onto that digital twin allows commanders to make in a real-time decision as to how they manoeuvre, how they use their resource and even where they put their resources in an emergency situation. So we've moved the goalposts from being able to connect 
to being able to make those real-time decisions and leveraging the capabilities in terms of data that we receive so that we can make those informed decisions. And can I just ask on that, Tony, does that mean obviously different jurisdictions have different processes, but this would allow that kind of real-time collaboration regardless of jurisdictions? Because I think, as we would say, emergencies don't respect boundaries. Absolutely. Every, every department has its own processes, it has its own tools for various reasons. And so this is a way of allowing them to be able to communicate and operate with each other. And that was one of the biggest challenges even Wayne can talk to in terms of what we saw with the bushfires, because you had your rural fire agency services, you had your police, you had your defence force, all of them trying to help, but all of them operating on different systems. Can I ask, we've mentioned digital twins a few times, but Wayne, can I ask you, can you explain a digital twin, how it works, and then we can talk about what people would need to understand about how to access one and what it looks like in practical terms, because it sounds very cool, but I just wanted to get to the nuts and bolts of what we're actually talking about. Yes. First of all, digital twins are not new. Digital twins have been around for a long time. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of digital twins. Digital models and replicas uh, of everything across our built and natural environment. What we are doing at Spatial Services, and in conjunction with our jurisdictional colleagues through ANSLIC, the Australian New Zealand Land Information Council, is we're developing and rolling out what's called a spatial digital twin. There's no argument about the value of the digital twin and certainly the technology that we have available in order to, to utilise them. But when we're actually able to use those key foundation spatial data sets, those common inputs that we ask industry and government to utilise, we're able to spatially enable each one of those individual digital twins so it fits and plugs and plays into its real-world location and therefore they're actually able to be interoperable amongst each other. So we can see different digital twins, IoT sensor devices, all in a holistic picture rather than individual models being looked at and analysed and reporting on and providing that information. It's very, very empowering, especially for realising and delivering smart cities and, and smart places. You know, I've been able to provide a holistic perspective to the citizens, to those people who want to see what's happening in the place that they live. They just want to look at, I go here to have a look at this output from this sensor network and this information around where the schools are. They want to be able to have a look at that as a holistic perspective so they can make really important and valued decisions and judgments on the place they live and how that affects their lives. It, it is, Corey, it is interesting because, you know, as Wayne said, uh, when people ask me about digital twins, I use the Apollo 13 movie because most people have watched the Apollo 13 movie and say, okay, so what's it got to do with digital twins? I said, well, you remember when they were trying to work out how they're going to get these astronauts back? They had a model, an exact replica of the model of the spacecraft and have one of the astronauts you know, operating the switches and trying to produce the procedure that those guys would use. That was a digital twin. It's a physical twin. What we've done now is we've turned it into a digital. Basically, we've turned it into a program. You know, so we've taken that from that physical asset into that digital asset, and that allows us then to manipulate it with data, with inputs, and so forth. You know, we really started doing that around 2002. The reality, though, you know, the digital twin market in 2019 was about $3.5 billion dollars. So it was widely used. What we're seeing now because the advent of all these capabilities and technologies is by 2025, it's expected to be about $35.3 billion industry. 
So help me here. Sorry, I, I want to understand. I can visualize the buildings and construction, and but that massive growth. Where else is it coming from? And Wayne, sorry if I took you off track. No, no, no. That's fine. And. Just look outside your window. Imagine a picture, what you're looking at, what's there, what's underground, what's on the ground, what's above ground. There's actual infrastructure. And, and a lot of that information exists and it is digital and it is spatially enabled. And we're bringing that all together to be able to identify what's happening in real time and potentially interact with that. Tony mentioned that with the advent of 5G telecommunications and our ability to consume information like we never have been able to before we're able to be able to monitor what's happening so if there's sensors on the water mains what's the pressure what's happening what buildings lights are on we already have smart homes and smart houses you know so being able to enable people to actually interact and model or understand where there might be weaknesses is a really, really a powerful capability for people to actually start consuming. And I don't think we can underestimate the demand for citizens out there in order of being able to interact with a digital replica of their world. And you asked about the question around where are we seeing all this growth in digital twins? Why are we going to see this explosion in the use of digital twins? And smart cities, that smart environment, that capability is absolutely an area that we're seeing across the globe that driving that digital twin requirement and leveraging the new capabilities like 5G and VR and AI because they're all becoming more integrated, uh, you know, because we now have the capability to do that. But there are other industries. You know, manufacturing has had digital twins as part of its stalwart for years. It's just nothing new. But the way they can use it with these advent of these new technologies is really driving more demand on digital twins, even in the manufacturing industry. Smart cities is obvious, and it's not just in the sense of we talked about the first responders, emergencies, and so forth, but even in terms of being able to do investments, councils and local governments are looking at digital twins to help them with their investments, to help them make decisions about where they do developments. Simple things like traffic control and the day-to-day operations are driving the need for digital twins in, in smart cities. But even industries that haven't traditionally had digital twins as part of their backbone are now starting to incorporate. We look at some things like retail industry. Now, retail industry is is a relatively new space, but, you know, they're increasingly looking at modeling customer activity and and the behavior in stores and how they can improve item purchases in real time, by the way. We're not talking about after the event, in real time. And then doing things like predictive stock and inventory management all through digital twins. We look at the construction industry, for example. Construction industry, two of its biggest concerns or business drivers that they have been safety, ensuring safety is the number one priority. And the other big challenge they deal with is managing that supply chain because one thing can introduce significant delays and delays is the worst thing for the construction industry. So we're seeing them leveraging digital twins with 5G and getting those real-time data from sensors in the site, from transports and logistics and so forth, and basically being able to be able to address safety as well as address any situation that arises as a result of a change, an unexpected change. So we're seeing it across the industry. And and, and I have to say that it's important to note that the requirements haven't changed for the use of digital twins in all these industries. What has changed, however, is we're at a perfect intersection point of new technology and capabilities like 5G, AI, and virtual reality. And they're making the art of the possibility a reality for these industries. 
Yeah, and that's really important. And it really highlights the true value of spatial information, especially the foundation spatial information. We mentioned at the introduction that we've moved from producing paper maps to digital data, individual data sets. So in effect, it's taking us from a 2D flat paper map to a three and four dimensional digital model. That three-dimensional, there is such an increasing appetite and requirement because we want to be able to see our built and natural environment in a true 3D perspective. But that 4D perspective is really, really important. There's not a pipe that goes into the ground or infrastructure that is built without the requirement for the positioning framework, for survey, for land and parcel information, property information, all of that. Now we have the capabilities and we actually have done and have the data available. And with the technologies now able to produce it, we have time enabled that data. So being able to go back in time and seeing what did the, the land fabric look like 10 years ago when we made these decisions or even being able to look forward in time with future models, et cetera, coming into it, it really empowers the decisions. And from a government perspective, we really need to look at and understand how does this benefit our customers or citizens? And being able to shorten the development approval time, being able to do e-compliance checks rather than manual paper-based compliance checks, all of this relies on a truly spatially enabled, positionally accurate model three and 4D model of our, our built to natural environment and the ability for people to actually consume it and that data to be shared and interoperable across the, the multiple systems and applications that are used, not just across government, but also across our industry partners and with the consumers. I think it's fascinating the point you just make because, you know, as we're talking, we can see each other during this discussion, but you've got a New South Wales customer service logo behind you. Now, if, if I was a betting person and we we're talking about spatial services, I wouldn't be thinking customer service is where that would sit. And it is interesting because you're ultimately creating the tools and the information for people to create better citizen outcomes. Absolutely. From an information perspective, for us, data informs information. Information informs intelligence, and we are able to make those decisions. We need to not just look at what we are delivering now and how we can better deliver customer services and get the right products and services to the people when they need it. We need to plan for the future as well. If anything COVID has taught us is we no longer have this divide across city and regional populations. There is a migration of people into the regions. The ability to work from home, the ability to work flexibly, the ability to utilize that technology has really identified that we need to understand where are people going to be? What's going to be there? How are they going to be able to be serviced? How can they get products and services? It's just going to be powered by data and insights. On that, can I ask you, the GNAF look up that data set that was made available, I know this is federal government, so but I was always fascinated in the sense that it seemed to say that was a data set that was made open for people to use to kind of innovate from, like to kind of be able to look up any place in Australia, that data set. So it's almost like, here you go, we've made it available, you can now identify down to a very small point any lookup address in the country. So I'd love an update there. And also, as you're talking about the migration, the way people move around the country, being able to find them and being able to account for every location in the country via a data set would seem 
even more important than what it was five years ago. Oh, absolutely. So GNAF stands for the Geocoded National Address File. So basically what it represents is every address has a geocode. So we all understand the importance of an address. But when you type in an address on your mobile phone or, or your computer and whatever mapping application, online mapping application you're looking on, which you don't even realise is an online mapping application, it automatically takes you to that location. That's the geocode that uses our spatial data and also the positioning framework. That's one of the data sets that we maintain for New South Wales. We actually create a physical geocode for each address. So when address information comes in, we create a, a geocoded address file. GNAF is actually made up of a combination of all of the states and territories equivalents to ourselves. All of that data goes in to the GNAF product, as well as other address information from Australia Post and postal IDs, etc. It's extremely valuable, and New South Wales government has certainly, for a, um, a number of years, had an open data policy. You know, where data is applicable to be made open, let's make it open. Let's help enable innovation. So a lot of those applications, for example, are transport applications, you know, anything that is taking a feed of that information and people are utilising it to identify new uses and additional products and services that meet particular customer requirements. And it's the same with our foundation spatial data. We are now, instead of paper maps, as we've been referring to, we make those individual data sets available as real-time APIs. So no longer, whereas GNAF was traditionally updated every quarter, now we provide nightly updates of the information. So the information is being consumed in as near as real-time as possible from API services that people can be guaranteed or assured that they're accessing the latest information on their mobile device, on their computer or in their system. I think it's fascinating. And Tony, keen to get a sense from you as well. As we're talking, I'm getting this sort of rich picture of what are the problems that need solving? We have this underpinning technology that's going through this you know, incredible change and in what's possible, plus unlocking of all of this data for people to literally find ways to match it with challenges. Like it seems to be a very rich time for innovators and entrepreneurship and for businesses. Are you feeling that in the business and government communities about what's happening now, where we're standing? Absolutely. And and I hate to bring the C word up, but I think the C word has helped COVID. If we look at organisations to last year, they were in various forms of their own digital transformation, whether it was government, whether it was enterprises, public, private, it didn't make a difference. Various forms of, of that digital transformation. COVID came along and basically almost overnight, for your survival, you had to either start your digital transformation or you had to accelerate your digital transformation. So what did that do to most organisations, including government? It introduced a whole lot of new technology. It also introduced a whole lot of new data points into those environments. And so we now move to the point where they're now trying to say, well, now we're digitised. Well, how do we either accelerate it or how do we use it in a different way? Because we're now familiar with the technology. You even had the laggards who didn't want to touch technology were forced to go into technology. And so now they're realising the benefits. And so we're also seeing that having an impact upon the acceleration of people trying to understand and organisations, whether public or private, how they can use that technology in a better way. And data is everything. That's what they've realised. Data is everything. How they can use that data, what information it can help them to make either decisions on operational efficiencies, whether it's an enterprise to make decisions on, on where to spend or invest. All of that is now more realistic and more possible with the capabilities that we've got from these new technologies and the fact that they're becoming more familiar with them 
as a result of having to start doing that digital transformation. So absolutely, we're seeing a lot more of the organizations actually asking questions about trying to see how they can use data in the next couple of years. Wayne, this is um, a bit of a geeky question, but I genuinely am curious. There is a lot of conversation about space right now. It's been like a strategic area. Even just this morning, there's been a lot of announcements. Where does geospace end and when does space space start? And I will say I have a space background, <laughs> so it's kind of a surreal conversation. But but where's the divide? Is there a is there a handshake agreement on where the two kind of meet in the middle, or is it still a bit grey? If I'm speaking to somebody who has a background in space, please be kind to me. <laughs> Look, there's, there's really three reasons to go into space, or, or four if you're Richard Branson. But um, basically, telecommunications, Earth observations, and positioning. Geospatial relies on all of those. So at what point does geospace become space? Um, from a geospatial perspective, it's another example of technology providing significant benefits. If we go back a number of decades, the only way we could get an aerial image of uh, the landscape was flying a plane. Now we have satellites, you know, as small as a box with cameras that can capture images of anywhere from you know, 20 to 20 centimetres up with multi-band sensors on them that allow us to do all sorts of analysis, you know, including water detection, vegetation detection, all of that is indeed a real capability. But probably more importantly, and what not a lot of people realise, I mean, people think, uh, look up their mobile phone and it takes them to where you are there. That doesn't happen without space. It doesn't happen with space referencing our surveying and positioning network as well. The ability to position ourselves precisely, moving down to two centimetres, requires our use of space technology and sensors. Our telecommunications, again, space-based satellites and sensors are a fundamental requirement for all of those. So space and spatial is really, really a close relationship and really important. We have a SmartSat CRC that has been funded. You know, the spatial industry has a, has a very real partnership in terms of the research activities and, and the business outcomes and, and the business solutions we can get from having a space program. It is something that Australia really needs to embrace and adopt. And I am so pleased that we are now exploring our own space capabilities. And I think that what's, what's helped in that, Wayne, as well, is the, um, you know, when we start looking at the advent of nanosatellites as well. I mean, when we think about satellites, when we originally sent them out, they were very expensive devices, were limited in capabilities and so forth. The ability now to send off nanosatellites, which are much smaller, much cheaper, but have much more powerful capabilities than, than we've ever had. You know, it's starting even to blur, well, where does space end? You know, we're just really extending out that space line, as we're saying. But I think that affordability question is now something that's why I think, you know, Australia really needs to look into to this space or this area because we do have now capabilities that are more affordable so that we can invest in that um, space technologies. And very importantly, as Wayne said, it's critical to a lot of the services that we're going to be relying upon data for. You know, as we become a more digitized environment, economy, whatever way you want to look at it, the reality is we are becoming more digitized, needing more data to make decisions. I'm going to wrap up with this question. So, Wayne, given everything we've talked about, if I'm an Australian business or, in this case, if you're in New South Wales and you're getting inspired by this conversation, you want to learn more about how can I actually start accessing some of this data or working with the New South Wales government and some of these 
digital twin technologies. What would you do? How would you start exploring how you could partner with government on accessing some of this information? Reach out to us. Yeah. Our customers are our most important point of contact to understanding the kinds of products and services that we need to keep producing. Of course, we have a function and a responsibility to maintain, you know, a spatial representation of our built and natural environment because let's not forget that we also need to serve our future generations and ensuring that they have access to this information to utilising whatever technology they have available to them so they can understand where we have come from is of paramount importance. But back to the customers. I mean, one of the things, especially from a New South Wales government perspective, we're here to service not just government, but our industry and our public partners. And we embrace the opportunity to learn more from our customers in terms of what they want, what they are seeking, or how they can better utilise what we have that is available to them. Fantastic. Tony? Yeah, look... For us, it's really about bringing together an ecosystem of partners and providers and then help working with them to deliver capabilities, whether it's out to the public, to government or to to enterprises. And we leverage several capabilities in terms of doing that. We've built labs around the place that, for example, 5G labs. And on that backbone, you have something, for example, we have a, a platform called ThinkSpace that allows you to integrate some of those data points into it and then develop your applications around it, your environments around it to be able to leverage whether it be 5G. 5G, by the way, exists in both public and private 5G. So you're going to hear more about the uh, advent of private 5G in this space as well. But, you know, so so bringing those, those partners together and then innovating together is going to be where we see our role in, in helping, you know, both governments and enterprises in this space. Uh, a good example, just for first responders, and I'm not sure if Wayne's heard about this, but, but in the US every year in Atlanta, Georgia, we have a um, something called an an OCR, and the OCR, I'll just tell you what that means. It stands for um, the Operation Convergent Response. And really it's about bringing all these first responders as well as partners in together into this large space where they get an immersive experience about how to deal with emergencies and first response requirements. And in that space, amazing innovation occurs because you have more than 150 partners and over 100 first responder agencies all working together in that small environment for over that week. So that's where we see we have a play in that, is to bring those capabilities together, leveraging our partners and our, our audience, whether it be government or whether it be enterprise. I've heard some amazing stories out of that event, and it really is sort of the cutting edge of where technology meets emergency response. So I'd just like to thank both of you. I think this conversation go on for a long time. I hope we get a chance to do an update in uh, months and years to come. But Wayne Patterson, Tony Hub, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Corey. Thank you, Corey. We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com 